You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading for this afternoon in connection with the doctrine of baptism and particularly of infant baptism is the 11th chapter of Romans. So let us turn to Romans chapter 11 and we will read this chapter in its entirety. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will neither spare you. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This afternoon, we will give our attention to the doctrine of the Word of God as confessed by the church in Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And this afternoon, we will restrict ourselves to question and answer 74. Should infants to be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon our catechism takes the time to remind us as God's people of the special place of children in the life of our church community. Catechism reminds us very emphatically in this Lord's Day that the children of believers are special children. From day one of their lives, they deserve to be regarded as special. So much so are they special that we can even describe them without hesitation or reservation as saints. We don't necessarily want to call them little angels, but we certainly may call them with the word of God, what God calls them saints. And as a result, says our catechism, infant children of believers should be baptized. And the liturgical form, which we have adopted for use in our Reformed churches, says it even stronger. It says children must be baptized as heirs of God's covenant. Now, as you undoubtedly know, there are many wonderful Christian people in our communities here in the Fraser Valley who would dispute that statement. They would dispute what we read here in question and answer 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism. They would certainly dispute the statement from the form for the baptism of infants. And these other Christians in our community who belong to various evangelical churches may well believe that their children are special and they go to a certain degree of effort to even dedicate and consecrate their children to the Lord. And they may be very conscientious parents who who strive wholeheartedly to show their children the ways of the Lord. And yet they are convinced that baptism should be restricted to those who have professed their faith. Now, as we think about this, some people are inclined to say, 
Why bother discussing it again? Why don't we as believers just learn to put aside our differences, to bury the hatchet, if you will, of theological warfare and dispute, and just learn to get along and unify ourselves in the great calling which God has given us to evangelize the nations. After all, we might be asked rhetorically, is baptism really that important? Should we care that much whether children of believers are baptized or instead dedicated to the Lord? Why should we care? Why does it matter so much? Well, as I hope to show you this afternoon, brothers and sisters, it matters and we should care because God cares. God cares about how we perceive the children of believers. God cares about how we how we think about their place in the community of the believers. God cares about the children of believers because God cares about his covenant of grace, which he has established with believers and their children And so this afternoon, we will see how through baptism, God seals his covenant promises. And we will consider, first of all, the recipients of baptism. And secondly, the responsibilities of those who are baptized. First, then, the recipients of baptism. Well, if we were all living together in the time of the old dispensation, I don't think we'd be having this discussion this afternoon There were undoubtedly many disagreements amongst the covenant people in the old dispensation, but there were certainly no disagreements among them about the place of children in the covenant community. And although Baptists and Mennonites and other kind of evangelical Christians may have a lot of disagreements with Reformed and Presbyterian believers about the place of children in the church today, they do not disagree with us at all when it comes to the place of children in the time of the old dispensation. Every Christian can readily agree that in the time of the old dispensation or the old covenant, children absolutely did belong. That is crystal clear on on virtually every page of the writings of the Old Testament. Right from the very beginning, the Lord had made this abundantly clear. When God made his covenant with Abraham, he said, In Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And so Ishmael and Isaac, the children of Abraham and Sarah, or the children of the children of Abraham, rather, could grow up knowing beyond any doubt that they, as boys, as young men, did belong with their parents to the people of God. Ishmael and Isaac were not halfway members of the covenant. They were not potential members of the church. No, they were, they were covenant members with full status, with all the privileges thereby entailed. God they knew from the earliest days of their lives. God they knew had claimed them. God had made them his very own. They were aware of their covenant status. They were aware of God's covenant promises, God's covenant commitments to them. And the Lord made it abundantly clear to them that he was very possessive about the children of believers. And now, despite the the clear teaching of the Old Testament writings that children of believers really do belong to God's covenant with their believing parents, 
Baptist Mennonites and many other believers today believe that in this age, in this time of the new covenant, in this new dispensation established in the death and resurrection of Christ and through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God now works in a very different way. There has been a change, we are told, in covenant administration with the result that children of believers are no longer part of the church. And if you talk to Baptists and evangelicals and get into a good discussion about it, you will find out very quickly that this is really what they believe. The children are not members of the church. The children do not belong to the body of the church. The children do not belong to the communion of the saints. And they say that this is so because in the new covenant, God works very differently than he did in the old covenant. The old covenant, they say, that God established with Abraham and his descendants after him was, was just a national covenant. It was a national covenant between God and, and a people. The old covenant, they say, was anchored in flesh and blood. It was hereditary. Whereas the new covenant, we are told, is spiritual. It's not based on nationality, heredity. It's not anchored in flesh and blood, but only on faith. Only through faith can you belong to this new covenant. The old covenant was made with believers and their children, but the new covenant, we are told, was made and is made only with believers. And baptistic writings of even well-known Baptist authors that many of you have become aware of and you've read their books, they really do say it that bluntly. The new covenant is made not with believers and their children. The new covenant is made with believers, pure and simple. And so only when children grow up and reach a certain understanding of the gospel and are able to profess their faith credibly before the people of God, only then may they be baptized. Only then may they be regarded as members of the body of Christ. Only then may they share in the privileges of the communion of the saints. And only then may we be sure about their salvation. Now, what do we think about these ideas that are so widely dispersed in the general Christian climate in which we live here in the Frisia Valley? Well, we certainly can't agree that there are differences between the old dispensation and the new. Best way to understand that is to realize that the new dispensation is ever so much richer than the old dispensation. We heard that this morning. The Apostle Paul described the old dispensation in 2 Corinthians 3 as a dispensation of death and condemnation. And he described the new dispensation in Christ as a dispensation of righteousness and life. And so the new covenant brings with it greater blessings. It brings an increase in privilege. God's blessings are fuller in the new covenant. God has provided a definitive sacrifice for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. And God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his new covenant people, something that never happened in all the time of the patriarchs and the kings and the people of Israel. And no longer does God have a temple in Jerusalem to which people must go to worship him. No, in the new covenant, the church has become the temple of God and God dwells in the church as he used to dwell in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet we should not make the mistake, brothers and sisters, of 
imagining that the new covenant, which the New Testament so highly praises, is, is really entirely new. Our reading from Romans 11 this afternoon shows us that indeed the new covenant is not entirely new. In this chapter, as, as you could discern, the Apostle Paul compared the covenant that God had made with Israel to an olive tree. The covenant people are, are like an olive tree, says Paul. And in the old covenant on that olive tree, there were only Jewish branches. Whereas in the new covenant, God has grafted into that olive tree also Gentile branches. But the point is, and it's unmistakable really once your eyes are open to it, the point is that there's only one olive tree. There's not two olive trees. There's not, there's not an olive tree for the old dispensation and then another olive tree for the new dispensation. No, there's only one olive tree. God did not start something brand new when, when he grafted in the Gentiles. Instead, God merely included the Gentiles in the covenant which he had established long ago with Abraham. And so the message of the Bible is there is one God and there is one covenant of grace and there is one people of God. That's what Scripture reveals. And then I ask you, brothers and sisters, if there is only one God and if there is but one covenant of grace, if there is but one olive tree, if there is but one people of God, continuous through the old dispensation to the new, well, then it stands to reason, does it not, that children still belong to the covenant of grace? If little boys and little girls during the time of the old dispensation were like olive shoots on God's olive tree, why would it be any different for boys and girls of believing parents in the new covenant? Would that not be a diminishing of privilege? Would that not be a situation of of poverty compared to the privileges of the Old Testament? And how can that fit if the new dispensation is, is an era of greater privileges, of an expansion of God's blessings? How could anyone possibly think that for children there is a diminishing of privilege? There is a diminishing of, of their status. They did belong in the past, but now they, they, do, they don't belong. They are outside. They stand outside the body of Christ. You know, if you remember the fact that the vast majority of early Christian believers that we read about in the New Testament were, were Jewish Christians, you can, you can see that it would have been unimaginable for these Jewish Christians steeped in the ways of their ancestors, steeped in the doctrine of the Old Testament. It would have been unimaginable for them as converts to Christ that they as adults would become members of Christ's people, that they would belong to Christ's church while their children would remain outside. That would be so un-Jewish, so un-Hebrew, that would be so contrary to the spirit of the covenant. What we would expect instead, with the whole Old Testament in our hands, is that the children of those Jews who came to faith in Christ Jesus would be added to the church along with their parents. They would be called church members. That's what you would expect if you've been reading Genesis to Malachi. Then, then the little ones in the household of Christian believers would be called church members. And they would be seen as part of the covenant community with all the privileges this brought for them. And in fact, if you have eyes to see it, that's exactly what you do find in the New Testament. It's transparent in the New Testament, really. 
When Peter preaches his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says, for the promise is to you and to your children. What promise was that, by the way? Well, that was the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says that promise of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out upon you today, that promise is for you and your children. You know, that's Old Testament language. That's Old Dispensation words. You and your children. Covenantal language. God's blessings poured out upon believers and their children. Exactly as it happened in the time of Abraham and Isaac and all the Jews who followed them to the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul uses the same kind of thinking in his letters. For example, one of the letters of Paul is, is written to the Ephesians. And when you read the introductory remarks of the Apostle Paul, it says there, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now, you all know what a saint is. A saint is someone who has been separated from the world and consecrated to God. A saint is a holy one. And all Christians are to regard themselves as saints. And so Paul is writing this letter not to a select group of people in Ephesus. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus, that means to the whole Christian community in Ephesus, I'm writing this letter. And then as you read through the letter of of the Apostle Paul and you come to chapter 5, you see that among the different saints, Paul has a word for different groups of them. He has a word for wives. He has a word for husbands. He has a word for employees. And at a certain moment, Paul also has a word for children. He says in chapter 6 that children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so if you compare chapter 6 to chapter 1, you can conclude something. You can conclude that among the saints who are addressed in chapter 1 are also the children of believers. Otherwise, why would Paul be talking to the children in a letter that's addressed to saints? Holy ones, consecrated ones, set apart from the world ones, dedicated to God people. Clearly, the children are among the saints. Children are holy ones. They belong to God. They belong to Jesus Christ. God includes them with their believing parents in his covenant and in his church. Well, brothers and sisters, if God reveals to us in his word that children belong to his covenant and congregation, isn't that a big deal for us? Would we ever dare to say that that's just a minor doctrine of of no real consequence and that we can just agree to differ and bury the hatchet of theological warfare and and just move on and and act as though this, this difference isn't even there? If children of believers are revealed in Holy Scripture to be saints, if they are included by Holy Scripture in God's covenant and congregation, then we dare not be silent about their status. And, of course, we want to engage in our discussions politely and respectfully, and we don't want to call into question anyone's Christian confession of faith. And yet, at the same time, there's no room on this issue for waffling. There's no room for for thinking it doesn't really matter. You know, sometimes people say, well, it's not a salvation issue. But is that really the right question to be asking? Is that, is that how we approach the Bible? We read our Bible and, and we divide it into salvation issues and non-salvation issues and then we agree to just more or less ignore or, or not emphasize at all anything that we in our wisdom have determined to be a non-salvation issue? Is that really 
a fitting posture for us to have in regard to the Word of God, congregation? I think not. A fitting posture for us in regard to the Word of God is rather, Lord, you have spoken. Give us understanding of all that you have spoken and give us the humility to accept all that you have spoken and give us also the grace then to defend and promote all that you have spoken in your holy word. And so having seen something of the status of the children of believers, a status which necessitates their baptism, let's now say a few things about the the responsibilities of those who are baptized. If I may go back to Romans chapter 11 with you at this point, the Apostle Paul very vividly describes the responsibilities of all those who are baptized, including the children of believers. But what does Romans 11 teach us about the way in which believers remain on the olive tree? Well, the answer is they remain on the olive tree by way of their faith. God gives children of believers a place on the olive tree, a place of privilege. And God says that the way in which you stay on that tree, that covenant tree, is through believing my promises. You stay there by faith. And congregation, isn't that what Christian parenting is also all about? We tell our children the stories of the Bible. We lead our children in family devotions. We pray with our children. We pray for our children as parents. We take our children along to the church services as soon as they're able to sit quietly. And we send them to catechism class when they reach a certain age. And we invest a great deal of energy and money in providing for them a thoroughly Christian education. And and what's the purpose of all this? Well, the purpose of all this is that under the blessing of God, these children might be led to faith. That's the whole object of Christian parenting, that our children would believe the promises of the gospel and so might remain on that olive tree where God in his infinite mercy has placed them. One of the Psalms speaks about this very elaborately. I'm thinking of Psalm 78. The opening verses of Psalm 78 describe the task of parents in the church. And we read that it is the task of parents to Tell the upcoming generation about all the glorious deeds of the Lord and to teach God's commandments to the next generation. And then verse 7 tells us what, what the goal of all this parental activity is. It says, Then they, that is the children, would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. And so that's what child rearing is all about. That's what parenting as a Christian is all about. We're striving under the blessing of God to impart to our children knowledge of the mighty works of God, which he has accomplished in Jesus Christ, and leading those children to faith so that they might stay on the olive tree which God has put them on. And for you young people of the church and for you boys and girls, the message of your baptism is 
is one that you really ought to be thinking about probably more than you do. The message of your baptism is that your God, your Father in heaven, has committed himself to you. God has told you in your baptism publicly before many witnesses and before all the holy angels, God has has simply portrayed himself in, in your baptism as a God who is eternally committed to you. He's put you in covenant with him. He didn't wait until you agreed to this. He didn't ask for your permission. But in sovereign love, he, he just did it. He imposed himself on you. And, and God does that because he's God. He's the sovereign one. He's not dependent on the creator, on the creature, but he's sovereign over the creature. And so God imposes himself as the God of the covenant on all the children of believers, and he makes a solemn claim on their hearts. And God imposes many things on you if you stop to think about it when you're born into the world. When you're born into the world, God in his sovereignty imposes a whole identity on you. God decides whether you're going to be male or female, for example. And God determines whether you're going to be Caucasian or Asian or African. He just does that. He doesn't ask for your your opinion on this matter. He he just sovereignly intrudes himself into your life from the very beginning and puts a stamp on you in terms of gender and race. Now, of course, there are always some foolish people in the world who want to mess with what God has given them in his sovereignty. And there are people who are male who decide they want to become female. And there are females that want to become males. And we can see the foolishness of, of arguing with what God and, and sovereign power and wisdom has imposed on you. But, you know... However foolish that may be, and it really is foolish to try to make yourself a different gender or a different race, it's equally foolish to somehow try to undo, as it were, the covenant status that God has imposed on you from the very beginning of your lives. Reality is, young people, whether you like it or not, and I'm surely hoping you like it, but whether you like it or not, your life as children of believers is inescapably covenantal. And all of your life's busyness and all of your life's choices and activities, you will always be presenting yourself as either a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. And you can't get away from that. That's just the reality of it. God has included you in his covenant. He's imposed his covenant on you and therefore in all that you do. You will either be saying yes to that covenant or you will be saying no to that covenant. You will be breaking it by your disobedience and your unbelief. You know, there's something enthralling about sin. There's something fascinating about covenant breaking. The world glorifies rebellion. The world encourages you as young people to just go and do your own thing, to throw off the chains of oppression, to strike out and be free. And probably for for a lot of covenant youth, that sometimes is appealing. Just imagine, just you could just get in your car and drive away from home and and be done with religion. No more church, no more catechism, no more home visits, no more worship services on Sunday morning and afternoon. Now you get to be yourself. You get to do your own thing and find your own way. It's an alluring dream and. Many people have fallen for that dream. But you know what? No matter how far you drive, 
no matter to what corner of the earth you go, you will never be able to undo the status that God has imposed on you in your baptism. You'll never be done with religion, even though you go to the ends of the earth. The covenant God imposed on you, young people, will stamp you for all eternity. You can walk away from God, but then you'll always be a covenant breaker. Just like a father who walks out on his children will always be a faithless father unless he repents. So people who who walk away from God will always be covenant breakers. Even in the age to come, they will be covenant breakers. And therefore, they will receive in their own person the due penalty for their, their sin against God's mercy to them. Now, what God desires for you, of course, as young people, is, is not that you would walk away, not that you would experience covenant life as restrictive and oppressive, but what God desires for you, young people, is a life filled with the blessings that he alone can bestow. This is what God has in mind for you. When you were a little child and you came before the church and your parents held you before the Lord and his people, this is what God had in mind for you, a life full of blessing, a life in which you could know at every single moment of every single day, at every phase of your life, that the great and glorious creator of heaven and earth is totally committed to you. He says he is in his word, and in baptism he makes it doubly sure. He guarantees it with an oath, as it were, so that you would never have to doubt for even a second, is God with me? Is God for me? Is God on my side? Of course he is. God has publicly bound himself to you. God has committed himself to you. What an incredible comfort that really is for you who are young, growing up in a confusing and sometimes crazy world. You can just know, look, stuff's happening, stuff's coming down all the time, but God is committed to me. God is not a walkout God. I may have friends who walk out on me. I may have parents who don't always understand me, or at least I think they don't. And I may even have have older people who disappoint me and fail me, but there is one person who never will. He's not a walkout God. He's a faithful God, and I can count on him today, tomorrow, and forever because I was baptized into his name as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what God has in mind for you. Not oppression, not restriction, not forcing you to do something you don't want to do. But God desires to bless you with that unshakable confidence, that beautiful, unshakable confidence that he's your God. You're his child. And between the two of you, there is a bond of love that's precious and powerful. All that is your birthright. And would you give your birthright away just for the chance to do things your own way for a while? Just for some temporary pleasure? Will you miss out on on all the, the mighty joy that God has in mind for you? Now, we should make no mistake, it is true that that God does ask a great deal of young people. I don't want to whitewash that or diminish that in any way. God does ask a lot of young people, just like he asks a lot of older people. What God asks of you, young people, as the recipients of baptism is, is nothing less than the dedication of your whole life to him. As God has loved you first, God says, I want you to love me responsibly. And I don't want just a little bit of love. I don't want just a little bit of your time and space and energy. No, I want the whole you. 
Everything you are, your, your mind, your spirit, your emotions, your talents, your time, your physical strength, your relationships, your job, your studies. I want it all. And I want the entire package of your humanity to be consecrated to me in dedicated love and service. I don't hold anything back from you, says God. I'm not holding out on you at all. And I don't want you as my treasured covenant people to hold out on me, even just be it ever so little. And you know, it's also a fact that only when you give yourself to God wholly with all that you are, can you enjoy God and can you enjoy life in covenant with God. I think a lot of Christian people are lacking joy today, judging by conversations I have on a weekly basis with many Christian people. They're lacking joy, and and I firmly believe that one of the reasons we often lack joy as Christians is because we're holding back from God. We're giving God something other than that full commitment which He's giving to us. And you know, if you hold back on God and you're not surrendering the entirety of your life to God, you are not going to experience the joy of the covenant. It's just not going to be there for you. And you're going to find yourself having to force it. And you come to church and it's time to sing and you kind of have to force yourself. Or or maybe you have to force yourself to come to church at all. Or maybe you feel like you have to force yourself to read the Bible. It just doesn't come naturally anymore. Well, you know, that starts to happen when when you hold out on God. You can't experience the joy of God when you're holding back in your commitment from God. Just like you can't know the joy of marriage if you're not 100% committed to your spouse. You know that, right? Husbands and wives, you you can't really have a joyful marriage if you're not 100% committed to your spouse. Like 95% isn't going to cut it. Not even 99% committed to your spouse. In order to really enjoy marriage, to rejoice in it, to be daily revitalized in it, you have to be 100% committed to the well-being of that person you call husband or wife. And so it is with God. You cannot know the joy of covenant life if you're holding back from God. So how about it, young people, if I may address you for just a moment again? Ask yourself the question, what place really do the promises of God have in my life? Are they really precious to me? You know, in Second Peter 1, the apostle talks about the precious and very great promises of God. You know, the word precious, that, that has to do with the value you put on things. And we value many things as human beings. We value our jobs and our connections with people and we value our reputation and and we value our hobbies and we value our bank account. But, but far above all these things, says Peter, stands, stand the precious and very great promises of God. So how passionate are you about those promises? Do you think about them frequently? Do you meditate upon them? Do you talk about them? Do you maybe sometimes touch your forehead and, and remind yourself that you are among the baptized saints of God? That God has, in fact, claimed you lock, stock, and barrel as his very own? Or could it be, brothers and sisters, that sometimes we we are just kind of polite Christians? Polite young people. We don't openly despise the promises of the gospel. 
We don't walk away from the Lord entirely. We're still here. We go to catechism. We maybe go to young people's Bible studies. But we're polite about it. We're not passionate about it. We're not really diving into this with all of our energy and and youthful enthusiasm. Well, you know what your baptism tells you? Your baptism tells you that God is not impressed with your politeness. He's not interested in polite respect. He's not impressed either by the mere fact you haven't walked away from it all. No, God desires of you as young members of the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would serve him with zest, with zeal, with energy and enthusiasm, that you wouldn't care what the world thought about all that, even if the world thought you were playing crazy because of your Christian devotion, even if everybody thought you were some kind of a nutbar or a fanatic for God, doesn't matter. You are going to give the Lord your all and your everything without holding back. That's what God wants from you. That's what your baptism is calling you to give to God. And what happens when we don't do any of these things? What happens when we neglect the promises of the covenant? Well, Paul says something about that in Romans chapter 11, and it's pretty fearful. Paul talks about how the Jews were, were cut off of the olive tree because of unbelief. And Paul says to the Gentile Christians in Rome who were looking down their noses on the Jewish people, Paul says, you know, the same thing will happen to you. Just as God cut off the Jews, so he will cut you off if you do not continue in faith and repentance. And so having heard these things, we can see that infant baptism is no license for complacency. It's not a reason to just coast along, living without effort, without striving, without zeal. Instead, infant baptism is a great privilege that brings with it enormous responsibilities. God has given you his all. And so, brothers and sisters, the call of the gospel is return to God what he has given to you. Give to him your all, your everything, your whole life. Lock, stock, and barrel. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.